Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 16th, 2019. How time flies. Tonight, with the help of my guest, Stephen Renfro, I hope, I think we had some connection problems before the show, we are going to take a closer look at the whole fraudulent scheme surrounding the false claims of Chase Bank. I mean the claim that it somehow became the owner of loans that in some cases were not even originated by Washington Mutual, but it makes those claims where it supposedly acquired the banking operations of Washington Mutual. In all those cases, all those loans were sold by WAMU, as Washington Mutual is known, sold by WAMU contemporaneously with the origination of all all the loans. So even if it was a Long Beach loan, WAMU sold it. And Long Beach was paid their fee, and WAMU was paid its fee. But it went to buyers other than Chase Bank. The buyer was never Chase Bank. Not when it was sold by WAMU, not when it was sold by the FDIC, not ever. Yet Chase has escaped criminal penalties and still is allowed to foreclose on loans pretending to be the creditor when, in fact, the owner of the debt has no knowledge of the foreclosure and never sees a dime from the proceeds of a foreclosure. And yet the courts continue to allow foreclosure sales to occur in the name of Chase, who has represented that it somehow is the successor to Washington Mutual on those loans. In the old days, a judge would never have allowed such a thing without Chase showing the judge, even if it was an uncontested matter, without Chase showing that it owned the loan and had the risk of loss. But first I want to give a preview of something I'm working on. It's how mortgage loan debts go up in smoke, something that will be published initially tomorrow and then further explored in articles on my blog, livinglies.me. Remember that the old URL for livinglies.wordpress.com is now redirected 
to www.livinglies.me, M-E. When I started publishing articles about foreclosure in 2006, anticipating the, the tidal wave of foreclosures that was going to happen, I wasn't alone, but I was in a very small minority. And continuing every day since then, I made the point that the foreclosures were not being initiated by or even on behalf of any creditor. That remains true today. The law requires a foreclosure to be initiated by or on behalf of a creditor. They're not doing that. And so the money from the foreclosure doesn't go to a creditor. They'll say otherwise, but they can never prove it, as I'll demonstrate in a minute. The main strategy I suggested was to follow the money. You, If you're a follower of my blog, then you know that I'm constantly saying follow the money trail. The money trail is not the same as the paper trail. In fact, the two conflict. So the paper upon which they rely when they do a foreclosure is impliedly referencing transactions that never occurred, and the transactions that did occur are never reflected in the paper. The main tactics I recommended were discovery and cross-examination together with properly made objections at trial timely objections. Those who followed my advice won their cases regularly, if not always. There are no guarantees when you go to court. But those who either followed my advice or did it on their own basically won a lot more cases than they lost. The ultimate strategy is to keep the burden on opposing counsel. If you're doing, if you are successful in doing that, through the strategies and tactics I suggest for each case, because every one of them has to be examined individually, your chances of an outright win increase exponentially, and your chances of defeating a foreclosure are beyond an outright win for damages or affirmative relief. And that's because opposing counsel has no case other than the thin veneer, which is often successful, especially when it's uncontested, raised by apparent facial validity of documents that are in fact specially prepared for trial but presented to the court as business records or through the misplaced use of judicial notice. The point about knowing how securitization actually worked is not to prove it, but to let that knowledge guide you to strategies and tactics that might appear risky but are not. By knowing that the money trail contradicts the paper trail, you can ask increasingly probing questions that a robo-witness will not be able to answer. 
if you actually accept the possibility that following the money would lead to a conclusion that is opposite from the paperwork relied upon by opposing counsel, you will see every time that there are fatal gaps, inconsistencies, outright lies, fabrication, and forgery involved with almost every document they proffer or present. So here's the preview of debts going up in smoke, which I'll be writing about tomorrow and in succeeding days. The investment bank funds the origination or acquisition of the loan. You want to know who funded your loan? It's the investment bank. Or if they didn't fund the loan, they funded the acquisition of the loan. Then the investment bank sells all the risk of loss many times over, marketing the name, signature, and reputation of each borrower without their knowledge or consent, creating pornographic profits for the investment banks, far in excess of the amount of any loan. That was the whole point. And if you think about all the advertising that went into marketing loans that had little chance of making a profit, you can see why. Because they were making a profit not on the actual loan, but on the existence of the loan, which means the signature and reputation and name of each borrower. Concurrently, or within 30 days within, after funding, the, sa the sales uh, of, of the risk of loss and the income flows and everything, they're all complete, but they continue in trading for months, even years after, continuing to add up more and more profit for the investment bank. The income flow is sold to investors who think they're getting shares of a trust. The trust doesn't exist. The trustee has no administrative powers. There, the, the, no transaction has ever occurred in which the trust name was used as the buyer of loans or in which uh, the trustee of that trust supposedly received uh, loans from a trustor or settlor. Just didn't happen. Concurrently with that and continuing thereafter, the investment bank enters into various hedge contracts that remove all possibility of any risk of loss to the investment bank. By that point, they have no actual ownership of the debt. The contracts specifically uh, uh, remove any right of the investor to pursue the debt. And at the same time, the financial interest of the investment bank has been eliminated. So it does not own the debt anymore, and that's how it goes up into smoke. Each sale of, of such a contract represents another profit for the investment bank. When all is said and done, nobody owns the debt, and the risk of loss has shifted from a default on a loan to a decrease in the value of a security or paper contract that somebody's holding. The end result is that the many classes of investors are holding all the risk and are holding all rights to the income stream, while the investment bank essentially controls but does not even hold the servicing rights. It is completely walled off from any potential liability disclosure or servicing laws unless you pierce that veil. 
when the foreclosure is complete, the investment bank who no longer owns the debt is the one who collects the money and maintains the illusion that the contracts are all still valid even though the loan is gone. By collecting the money from the proceeds of the sale of the foreclosed property, it is adding insult to injury because it is not buying that money on its books to reduce any debt owed by the borrower. That's long since been gone. I'm broadcasting live from Deval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. I want to thank those of you who are increasing your donations from $10 and $20 to $50 and $100. That helps. It makes us... uh, Uh, able to subscribe to more services. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show is value for you, if any of the other shows are value for you, if our work on the blog uh, has value for you, which we all do without payment, compensation, revenue of any kind, then uh, chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Now, let's see if we've made the connection with Stephen Renfro. Stephen, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Neil. Thank you for inviting me. Good. Okay. Stephen Renfro, born in 1957 in Louisiana. I'm sure there's a better pronunciation than my New York accent will permit of Louisiana. Graduated with honors from Louisiana uh, Business College and Baker's Professional Real Estate College. He has a varied background in multiple disciplines, including management, sales, EDP in the fields of banking, insurance, real estate, engineering, and telecom. He holds an honorary degree of Juris Doctor from uh, the American Justice Foundation. So, Stephen, the reason I invited you as a guest is you have an an interesting article that you published about your 11-year experience with Chase and WAMU. Tell us how you got yes, into it. Yes, and uh, it's uh, it's been an experience, that's for sure. It's certainly uh, educational. I had to do a lot of research in the very beginning. I hired a paralegal team to uh, to look into it because I had suspected uh, too much was going on in the since the very beginning. Uh, this was along with uh, Wamu, or I believe originally, and uh, there there was. Ten thousand dollars to to do a refi? Uh, come on, you know. I mean, I, I've been out of the circuit for a while, it seems, but I, I just just didn't sit right with me. And I started looking at the uh, bank, the statements a little closer, and I noticed the interest rate two point five three. I said, wait a minute. So I dug out the paper, started reading. I remember it was one point two five. Well, they told us is advertised as one percent. Then it was one point two five. I said, you know, I could live with that. Now this was an adjustable rate, right? That rate does not change. They add the treasury rate on to that to make uh, the total rate. 
But uh, when I saw that it was hidden in the document that it was going to be 2.5 and only on the day of closing, I said, what in the world is going on here? So the paralegal team found a number of violations under RESPA, HOPA, FDCPA. Uh, TILA was the big one. That's the Truth and Lending Act. Now, it turns out that if there's any violations in, under the Truth and Lending Act, that three-day right of rescission, once you sign a document, extends for three years. So we drew up a complaint, and I filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court in uh, March 2008, and it's still ongoing. Now, that case in U.S. District Court, we won for fraud and even won damages for those TILA violations, but it was against the uh, original mortgage broker who was out of business because the state shut them down. So we could not collect on those. But during that case, WAMU went out of business, and somehow J.P. Morgan Chase pops up on behalf of Wells Fargo and Freddie Mac Rimmick Trust and tries to foreclose upon us. Well, we alleged fraud on the court, uh, abuse, et cetera, et cetera. They dropped the case. But uh, a matter of months later, they filed another foreclosure case, thinking that they had their ducks in a row, but they still didn't, still didn't have standing. But, you know, that cost us money, time, aggravation, and years drawing out this process. And now uh, we're in state court again with a quiet title action suing for uh, all kind of damages, but they want us to settle out of court, and we have that decision to make, either settle out of court and forgive them for everything since the beginning of time, and that's in the document, believe it or not, or, you know, move this along and suing for damages, um, even for malicious prosecution. One of the things that clouded our title was a, a fraudulent assignment of mortgage from J.P. Morgan Chase to Wells Fargo for $1. Now, any... Uh, but it's done the research in this knows uh, once you see the cases, you know, in, in uh, 15 U.S.C. 1611, uh, you cannot have really have an assignment of mortgage, even though they do it all the time. It's a nullity because uh, you cannot bifurcate or separate the note and mortgage uh, by the I was trying to tell the judge on the face of your honor, if they're saying that it's a remic trust. Well, you know, it's a it's been securitized, which means it's a security, no longer a note. How can they collect on that? And it means on the face of it, it's been bifurcated, separated. The note and mortgage cannot be separated. And that's over 140 years standing in Supreme Court of the United States under Carpenter versus Longin, and even in the state of Florida under Vance versus Fields. Uh, but he wouldn't listen to that. He shut me down, just kept rolling on, demanded he has jurisdiction. I said, you don't even have subject matter jurisdiction because there is no subject matter. He looked at me, why is there no subject matter, sir? Because there is no note. We rescinded it in the complaint in U.S. District Court in March of 2008. And the reason I did that is because, number one, I knew they would receive it. Number two, we would have proof they received it. Number three, they have 30 days to answer that by, you know, you have to to answer a complaint, right? And you don't get any bigger notice than a lawsuit in U.S. District Court, don't you think? So they had to stand up and take notice. As a matter of fact, in their answer to our complaint, they asked the judge to keep the principle in place. The judge denied and could not do so because we had already rescinded. But it's funny thing about rescission. No attorney wants to touch it. No judge wants to touch it. Don't even want to mention it. Don't want to hear it. But it's a matter of fact and matter of record and matter of law that uh, once uh, it's rescinded, the bank has 20 days to tender. 
That means to give you your money back, whatever you paid at closing, et cetera, and set the record straight. Then you can tender back to them. Well, they never did tender, see, in that 20 days. And we were waiting on a case that was going up to U.S. Supreme Court, which was the Jezinowski case. And uh, it was a unanimous decision. And Justice Scalia, just before he passed away, said this, and I quote, the receipt of the rescission notice means there is no more mortgage and there is no more note until a court says otherwise. And the court can't say otherwise unless the lender brings a lawsuit to challenge the rescission within 20 days of receipt. Since there have been no such lawsuits filed to my knowledge, it therefore appears to me that all notices of rescission that were in, ignored or rejected by letter had the effect of making the mortgage and note permanently void by operation of law without any lawsuit needed to enforce that presumption, unquote. That exactly describes our case and our situation, and I knew we had uh, the bull by the horns then and the ball was in our court. So what happened? Well, um, the J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo dropped the second foreclosure case as well, and that's when we moved into a quiet title action, um, and we're still involved in that uh, dispute and that matter. And hopefully we're going to wrap it up here in a couple of months one way or the other. Your article makes reference to the second and third lawsuit and then a fourth right. lawsuit. Yes, the second and third what? lawsuit was the two foreclosure cases, and the fourth one is our quiet title action, first one being the U.S. Okay. Our case in U.S. District Court. Okay, and this is for property located where? In uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida. Port St. Lucie, not that far from Jacksonville, where I am. So, right. <clears throat> Um, you make reference to the Florida Bankers Association comment letter, which I have referenced again in in recent uh, weeks, uh, in which the Florida Bankers Association. Well, let me back up for a second and say what the Florida Bankers Association is. There used to be the Florida Bankers Association, which consisted of the big banks, and the Community uh, Banker Association of Florida, uh, which was the smaller banks. Then the, the Community Bank Association of Florida was swallowed up by the Florida Bank Association, Bankers Association, and Ever since, the interests of the community banks have been suppressed, while the interests of the larger banks like Bank of America and Chase and Citi and Wells, Fargo, etc., uh, those are the primary uh, people who are represented by the Florida Bankers Association. I say that because uh, the Supreme Court, when considering rules in connection with foreclosures and what needs to be alleged and what needs to be attached to the complaint, 
invited comments from people who had any interest. And the Florida Bankers Association wrote a comment letter in which it said that the reason they're filing all their complaints, at that time that's what they were doing, I think this was in 2010 or 2009, um, the reason they're filing all their complaints as a, uh, with uh, account for lost note or instead of account, they just attach a lost note affidavit, which judges let them get away with without proving the loss of the note or the prior ownership of the note or the ownership of the debt. The reason why they were filing the lost note affidavits and the lost note counts according to the Florida Bankers Association, representing all the major banks, was that it was custom and practice in the industry to destroy the original note and rely on images. So that obviously produced a ripple and while that's never been withdrawn, that comment, they've been seeking to go around it. The point is, if they destroyed the original note and the law requires the original note for foreclosure, they can't foreclose unless they can prove the lost note elements that are required under law. They can't prove that because one of the elements is that they are the proper creditor, the owner of the debt, or that they are the proper representative of the owner of the debt, and they would have to say who that is. Always comes they're back very to reluctant. The same. Yes, yes, they're, and they're, they're very reluctant to come up with that information. So what are the the things that are currently pending, you mentioned in the article, raised judicata is an issue, which is, of course, for our listeners, uh, uh, the matter has already been litigated. Uh, that's the, right. the Latin, Latin to English translation. Uh, you mentioned that that is an issue in your current litigation in which you filed a quiet title action against J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, Wells Fargo Bank, Chase Home Finance, and Freddie Mac. Right. How are you using? How are you using race judicata? Well, it's mentioned in the complaint that uh, we already won our case in U.S. District Court. Of course, that would override any state court. They have to sit up and take notice. Uh, to that fact, and uh, I was trying to bring that up, as a matter of fact, the very beginning of the the second foreclosure case, because by then it, it was over, we, we did win, and um, I was bringing to the uh, attention of the judge the Jezanowski case, and at first he said, I'm willing to listen to anything Justice Scalia said, and then when I started going into subject matter jurisdiction, he shut me down. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't hear anything else and said it's got to be in the four corners. I tried to you know say it is in the four corners, blah blah blah. But uh, that that's that's the way 
they work, they operate. It seems like they're leaning over backwards for the banks. I don't know if it's because uh, they think they'll get in trouble or they might get their shares sold. Uh, I did some research in the background of that judge. He happened to have uh, owned shares in J.P. Morgan Chase and even had a mortgage by J.P. Morgan Chase. I had to get it, tried to get him recused from the bench, but uh, the, the panel of, of judges in the upper courts said uh, they didn't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> really. But anyway, well, to answer your question, rescue Dakota, yeah, we it's already been decided. We won. And it's rescinded. There is no note, there is no mortgage, nothing left to do but to correct the record but, so that we can close. We can't close on our house because the there's they've slandered our title and that's why we had to go in and quiet title because of this fraudulent assignment of mortgage. Okay, well, my 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 question is because I think you said that the uh, uh, the the judge failed to rule that the mortgage and note don't exist, and in in the app, res judicata applies to something that's already been litigated to con to findings of fact. But well, in a, in, in a U.S. Event, district court case. See, uh, he didn't yeah, have Stephen, to say that. Yes. We've, we've run out of time. Stephen, thank okay. you very much. Stephen Renko from Louisiana. And we'll be back next week to talk about more interesting things and ways in which you can protect your homestead. This is Neil Garfield, over and out. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.